Tonight, I'd like to read a passage that was quoted over and over again by a man just about a week ago. Here's what the passage says. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. For I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies." This psalm was written by a man's wife, um, well, written on a card. She had copied it from the scriptures, wrote it on a card, and gave it to a man who was a sailor. And he had uh, taken that to heart and had memorized that part of that psalm, Psalm 54. Little did he know that that would be a source of strength to him. I'm sure that most of you, if you are on social media at all, you saw the story of um, Harrison Okeen. He's a Nigerian, works on a tugboat. He uh, was the cook on that tugboat. And they were in the ocean off of the shores of Nigeria, and they were pulling some freighter, and there was a rogue wave that came out of nowhere and capsized that boat. There were 12 crewmen in all. And that boat sank. And it sank 100 feet and rested on the ocean floor. He was in the restroom at the time that this happened. Can you imagine how disoriented he, he was? He, he found an air pocket and realized that he had quit sinking, that it had rested on the ocean floor. He realized where he was. There's no way he, he can't get out. He's, he's hopeless. He couldn't swim to the shore. He couldn't hold his breath that long. And if he did, he would die from being so deep and coming up so quickly. Um, so he sat in total darkness. Um, he was there for 60 hours the space that he sat in was a six by six cu- uh, a cubic foot, six cubic feet of air. And somebody said, well, how can someone live almost three days in just six cubic feet of air? And the scientists that have since talked about what his situation was have said that it sank so fast and the air and the depth of it, maybe the air was pressurized just like a tank, you know, you would have a scuba tank and and the air would last longer. Um, He was in freezing cold water. Uh, You know, in water that's 60 degrees, after about two hours, you can very well die. But there was a a ledge that he was able to find where he he could kind of get most of his body up out of the water and he just sat there in total darkness for 60 hours. Can you imagine how claustrophobic that would feel, knowing that you're at the bottom of the ocean and there's nothing that you can do, and you're just waiting to die, to run out of air? The other 11 crewmen that were on this boat with him drown in the accident, 
And he said one of the horrifying aspects of it was that I could, I knew they were there because I began to be able to smell uh, their bodies. I was able to hear the sharks and the other fish as they were breaking bones. And he said, I was terrified. But I remembered that statement, that, that psalm that my wife wrote me, and I kept quoting it over and over again. He said, I was hungry. It was three days I hadn't eaten. But more than that, he said, I was so thirsty. There was water everywhere, but I couldn't drink any of it. How surprising it was to the recovery crew, not the rescue crew, but the recovery crew to to reach in and find a hand that actually grabbed him back. Uh, it scared the guy half to death, you know, when he reached in and felt a body, and then that body grabbed a hold of him. Um, and, you know, you can hear him scream in the video of it. Um, but he was rescued, he was taken to a decompression chamber, and they eventually got him to the surface. But here's a man who for three days had no hope, none. He thought he was done. There wasn't anything, any way. He was sitting on the bottom of the ocean. There's no way that he can survive. But he did. Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt like the world is just kind of crashing in around you and there's nothing that you can do? I don't know that I've ever felt that kind of despair like this man must have felt. But there have been times in my life that I've felt hopeless. And the point of this lesson is to remind you that nothing is hopeless. Even the worst of situations can be redeemed by grace. We serve a God of grace. In John chapter 1 and verse 16, as he talks about Jesus coming and taking on flesh and living among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and, and, and he's our, our concrete God. God isn't abstract anymore. He's concrete because Jesus put on flesh. And what he said and what he did and, and the places he went, those are the things that it, it reflected the character of God. But one of the things it says in verse 16 is that we saw in him the fullness, but also he spoke of God's grace that was expressed through him, and it was grace upon grace, accumulated grace. Or, you know, if your idea of salvation is if you live good enough and you don't make enough mistakes, God's grace will cover you and you'll get to go to heaven. That's not the picture at all. If God's grace, if your view of God's grace is chintzy and barely covers you, you have a mistaken notion of what God's grace is. It's abundant. Where sin abounds, grace does more abound, Paul said in Romans chapter 5. And so I want tonight to give you hope. Um, sometimes we can make mistakes in our lives and we, we feel hopeless. We feel like, oh, surely God will never forgive me now. Surely he's so put out with me, so tired of the same thing, so fed up, so disgusted with me. I, I don't even feel like I can even approach him in prayer anymore and ask for forgiveness. Um, he's probably through. No, he, he's not. There's hope. And how do I know that? Well, what I want us to look at are just a few 
Bible stories that I'm sure you're already acquainted with, but I want to put them together and then make a, a, a final point. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says, The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. The, the things that were written were written for us so that we can go, Ah, oh, that's good news. Ah, I see. It, it's written for us to give us patience and comfort and hope when sometimes we feel hopeless. Turn in your Bible, if you will, you can go back to Genesis chapter 19 and verse 20, and there's this Old Testament character, a man by the name of Lot. Lot was a nephew to Abraham. <clears throat> Lot made some bad choices in his life. There came a point in the time when he and Abraham were living together, his herdsmen and, and Abraham's herdsmen began to quarrel, and they said, listen, we're brethren, we can't be fussing like this. You pick, a, uh, you pick this way, I'll go this way. You pick this way, I'll go this way. And Lot picked Sodom, the direction of the city of Sodom. It was a mistake, costly for him personally. He lost some of his family in Sodom because of the wickedness that existed there. Probably that's one of those things that if he had it all over to do, and if he, hindsight, if he could see into the future, he, he probably would never have picked that direction. But he didn't have that luxury, like none of us do. And he made a bad decision, and it cost him his children. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. The Bible also tells us that when the angels in Genesis 19 came to the city of Sodom to, to look at the situation there. Do you remember that they, they were threatened? The men of the city threatened to uh, molest them and abuse them. And they came pounding on the door trying to get at them. And do you remember what Lot did? He said, leave these men alone. They're strangers. I've got two virgin daughters, take them. I've heard a lot of explanations about that. You know, the culture, the customs, you know, somebody who comes under the roof of your house you're supposed to take care of and, and all that. I, you know, it doesn't matter to me what the culture is. But you don't offer your daughters to men who are intent on doing evil. I can't imagine why a person would make that kind of choice. It's beyond me. But that's the choice, the decision that he made. A little bit later in the book of uh, Genesis, as Lot or, or as Sodom is being destroyed and, and they leave, you know, and Lot's wife looks back, yet another casualty of that decision ultimately that he made. And, and so he, he goes to the mountains and he's with his two daughters and they don't see any chance of meeting men there and having children. and So they get hit, their father drunk and they have relations with him so that they would have children. Now we have this man not only offering his daughters to a mob that would do violence to them, now we have those same daughters getting him drunk and he has relations with them. Not a very pretty picture. In fact, I think all of us would look at that with disgust and say, the man needs to be jailed. 
if he were living today. But here's an interesting commentary. When you turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, God speaks of Lot as righteous Lot. He calls him and says of him that he was vexed by the surroundings of Sodom. He didn't go along with it. He didn't enjoy it when he was there. He, he wasn't consenting to all the wickedness. It, it vexed him. It, it tortured him. He was a righteous man. How can a righteous man make those kind of decisions? What righteous men go out and get drunk and have relations with his own flesh and blood? What kind of righteous man offers his daughters to a mob of men who are intent on doing harm? Well, those aren't the actions of a righteous man. But what I know then is that Lot repented and God forgave. And isn't that good news? Doesn't that give you hope? I mean, I've made mistakes in my life. You've made mistakes in your life. I don't think they have reached the magnitude of what Lot did. And yet Lot, because he repents and God forgives him, he says, this, this is a righteous man. He's not measured by one or two decisions that he made in his life. There's more to him than these bad choices that he turned away from. There's hope because God's grace is expansive. Turn in your Bible to Joshua chapter 2. Children of Israel are about to enter into the promised land and, and they come, they, they send two spies and these spies, uh, well, words out, the Israelites are here. We got some spies in the city and they start looking for them and they, they scurry and they go into this woman's place, Rahab. She's a prostitute. Not only is she a prostitute, but when they come to her door and they knock and they say, hey, have you seen any Israelites around here? And she said, well, you know what? They just went that away. And she lied. And she hid them and, and helped them escape. And, I mean, you have a lying woman who sells herself to men. Not a very good person. But you know, she's listed twice in the book of James chapter 2 and also in Hebrews chapter 11. Among the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, she's listed. Why? Because God forgives. God can take a woman who's made some terrible choices with her life and has made some terrible choices with how she handles truth, and he can forgive. There's hope for me and for you. If God can look at Lot and say he's a righteous man, if God can point to a prostitute, a former prostitute, and say she is a woman of faith, then there's hope for me. Turn in your Bible again to Second or First Samuel. Well, and actually, Second Samuel, those two books just kind of summarize the whole story of, of David. You remember David and Bathsheba? He saw a woman bathing. He beheld her. He inquired about her. He sent for her, and then he commits adultery with her. 
She is now with child that belongs to David, and now he's got to cover up his crime. And so to do so, he, well, eventually has her husband put to death. So he has committed adultery. He has broken the vows, the marriage vows of another couple. He's interfered. And not only that, but he's murdered the husband involved. And, you know, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. How can that be? How can a man who would do something like that be a man after God's own heart? Because God forgives. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. You can turn in the New Testament and you can come to the Apostle Paul, Saul, of Tarsus, and, and we begin reading about him in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 7, he holds the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death, a man full of the Holy Spirit. He's consenting to his death. In Acts chapter 8, he's going into houses of Christians and hauling them off and putting them in prison because he hates Christians. He sees them as a threat to the religion of God. He tells us, uh, in his own words, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 10, as he's talking to King Agrippa, he says, Listen, I casted, I cast my vote to have these people put to death. That's how much he hated Christians. A man who put them to death. And well, what do we know of Paul? One of the greatest preachers that ever lived. Uh, the, the trials that he endured, the faithfulness that he showed. He uh, calls himself the chief of sinners. But looking at his life, if we could only be so faithful. But how could a man who had done so heinous things, consenting to a stoning, can, can you imagine stoning somebody? What that would entail? Holding their coats and and hauling men and women off into prison and voting that they'd be put to death. That's who he was. But it wasn't who he stayed. Because God is gracious. There's hope. And see, throughout the Old Testament, you have characters like Lot and Rahab and David, and we can come to the New Testament and talk about Paul and Peter and and a host of others. Story after story reminds me there's hope. And so now I come to my story. And then there's your story. You say you feel hopeless. You say you don't feel like God can forgive you. Do you know how many times I've heard people say that to me in my life? They'll come in my office and they'll be defeated and they'll, they'll sit down and they'll, they'll tell me about their problems. They'll tell me the things that have happened and, and how down they are and they feel hopeless. And you know what I do? I just pick up the Bible and I start going through these stories and saying, did you do as bad as he did? No, I didn't do that. But this is a righteous man. He made a change. God's gracious. What What is it? And, and if you come up, here's why I think pride is so appalling to God. It's listed as one of those things that God hates. And I think it's because we have, it's such a farce. It's such hypocrisy for us to pretend pride. 
Because we know we're sinful people. There's, there's no way I can pull this off. God sees it. He knows my, my... Would you like to show a little movie of some of your worst moments? If I could just take 10 or 15 minutes of your lifetime and choose what those moments are and put them up on the screen here tonight... I can make everyone leave here thinking you are one of the worst people that ever walked the face of the earth. I'm pretty sure of that. With all of us. They might think we're depraved, we're sinful, we're horrible people. But that's not the measure of our life. We've all made mistakes. We've all done things out of character. And hopefully, we've changed. And if we change... God's grace can allow him to look at us and see a good person, a righteous person, one who's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. I know a man who feels terribly guilty for the sins that he committed in his life, and he's constantly struggling with this, I'll never be good enough. And I finally, I just started saying, you're right, you won't. If you were, you wouldn't need grace. You'll never be good enough. But thank God that he's good enough and that Jesus was good enough to shed his blood for us. And so we rejoice not in what we merit or what we earn or what we've been able to do with our lives and the person we've made ourselves to be. We rejoice in grace that he could take a sinful person like me and save me and love me in spite of myself. Don't ever give up. There's hope. The Bible's full of stories of hope. This man that was sitting on the bottom of the ocean felt hopeless. But to his surprise, and to everyone's surprise, he found a way. And we, in our darkest moments, when we struggle and are broken by our sins, we feel hopeless. But in those darkest moments, God has found a way. And that's reason to rejoice. But I'll tell you what, that grace belongs to those who obey him, those who meet his terms of pardon. And if you're here tonight and you want hope, you're tired of hopelessness, you don't want to stand and face God in judgment for the things that you've done. You don't want to be measured by that. You want justified. Well, Jesus said... He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you haven't done that, do that this morning. God will save you from your sins, or this evening. He'll save you from your sins. If there's sin in your life right now, and you know it, and maybe you've struggled with it, and it's something that's been ongoing, and something you've tried to put down, and it keeps rearing its ugly head, and and it's this battle with you, and you feel guilty, and sometimes you don't even feel like you can approach God in prayer because I'm embarrassed. Realize that you serve a God who gives grace upon grace. He loves you. Don't turn from Him. He's willing to take you back. Humble yourself and he'll lift you up. If you need to humble yourself and ask God for forgiveness tonight and ask your brethren to pray for you, we'll do that as well if you'll come as we stand together and sing.